Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors reveal their creative process. I would say secrets, but some, why would they want to divulge their secrets? My name is Nihal Arthanaika. I'm joined by an author, journalist who is known amongst other accolades for his Man Booker Prize winning novel, The Finkler Question. He's written 16 novels and five works of non-fiction. His new work, Live a Little, explores the question of love during the twilight years. It's uh, Howard Jacobson. Howard, hello. Hello. How lovely to be talking to you. It's great to be talking to you. In my twilight years. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. What is your exercise regime? Do you have such a thing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good start. (laughs) We can get over this one very quickly. I do have a man who comes to stretch me twice a week. But mainly I lie on a mat and he pulls me. And when I lie on the mat, I am five foot, eight and a half. And when I get up, I'm five foot, 11, nearly six foot. It's worth doing. <laughs> but that's it, really. But I, but I walk. I've always been a, I've always been a right. walker because walking is very good when you're writing. You hit the wall and then you need to go for a walk to sort it all out. So it's walking and stretching. I mean, being a writer is a, is a fairly solitary existence. Do you need to have regularly the interaction of others? I need to have the interaction of another. I am a man that's always needed a close companion, and I have one in my wife, and we talk everything over. All my columns and articles I read to her in bed in the morning, and my books she reads before they go out of the house, so everything passes through her. We began life making television films together, and she was the director and and producer. So we began we began like that, and, that, and I've, so I trust her, and that's been a, a pattern that's continued. I couldn't live without. I couldn't live without that. You've been a guest on the Penguin podcast before with Richard E. Grant, I believe. Yes. You know, of course, that when you come on here, that authors bring along a handful of objects that have inspired their work. But before we find out what you've picked, uh, just give us a sense, what is Live a Little, your latest novel, all about? It's ironical, really, because it's the story of two people who, on the face of it, only have a little bit of life left. They're in their 90s. Though they are so full of life, you might feel that they could go on forever. It's the story, quite simply, of a woman, Beryl Dusenberry, who's terrified that she's losing her memory, and a man, Shimi Carmelli, who would love to lose his memory. He just wishes he could forget his life because his life is one of shame and she is doing all she can to hold on to her life by making tapestries of what her life has been and by writing diaries of it. So it's that's the contrast, really, forgetting and only wishing one could forget. They each have got a lot to give each other, even at this, at the age of 90. You have a... Just extraordinary selection of names in this book. Do the characters come to mind and then the name is attached? Or do they kind of grow into the name? I mean, Wanda Walsheim and these fantastic names that you have. Dickensian ability to be able to create these wonderful names. I love playing with names and I have from the very first book I wrote. I'm always very disappointed if I read a novel and 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 he's called Tom and she's called Mary. You mentioned Dickens and that's right. Dickens is a huge influence on me. Dickens was and remains the novelist I most admire. I like having fun with names and you kind of 
you understand yourself through a name, really. I've understood myself. I've been in a battle with my name. When I yearned to be a writer when I was young, I always thought something's standing in my way and that's my name. I do not see a book with War and Peace by Howard Jeff. No. Crime and Punishment by Howard Jeff. No, not a chance. So I do think we have intimate relations with our names and therefore the minute you give a character a name, you're scone some of the way to thinking about who that character is. So in this case, with Beryl, she changes her name. She wishes to recreate herself and have fun with herself and teasing her children and teasing her carers. She's a teasing woman, so part of her, her armoury of teasing is the name. Are you doing to us what she does to everybody around her? There's this kind Talking of... too much. No. <laughs> but it's the mischief part of it yes. that, that I'm intrigued. Because yes. not every author is mischievous. No, not every author is. All wants to be funny, and I've always wanted to be funny. One of my arguments with the times I live in is you don't get that kind of mischief in the discourse, which is social media. You don't get teasing. So I've discovered over the years it's got harder to tease people as a writer. They don't quite hear the tease the way they once did. They're a bit more deaf to irony. And people are finding it harder and harder to understand the idea of the dramatic voice. We're not all out there in the business of saying what we mean. And a novelist will not say what he means. That's assuming he knows what he means. This world of the imagination is light years away from the world of thumbs up or thumbs down. There ain't no emoji for, you know, what a novel, for what a novel does. Does that mean then that you feel that we are becoming more stifled? If I wrote my first novel now, it would cause, you know, all sorts of problems for me. And editors would be saying, can you really say that and all that? I'm having to apply a little self-censorship in a way I didn't have to before, or at least think about self-censorship. In the course of a year now, I do a 100 capitulations that I never had to do before for a quiet life. You just become a preposterous person if you just go, no, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that and I'm going to say the other. You pause and you think, OK, well, if there are decencies to observe and there are people's feelings to think about, I will, I'll do it for a bit. But I don't, th- I don't feel I should. I feel I'm being... I feel I'm being you're not being the real you, are you? Well, fortunately, I don't know who the real me is. Oh, um, I guess and I wonder I don't, who does. And that would be... I'd never put it to myself like that. I'd feel that I'm, that I'm being fancy about myself if I said that. But I think I, should, I think I should be allowed to find out. I think I should be allowed to explore, you know, indecencies and unkindnesses and inappropriateness. I should be allowed to... That's what a book is for, just to find your way through all that. And the fact that we all have to be careful now is terrible. Let's get into your objects, because you've brought a wide array of uh, images for us. The first one is, is really interesting. It is a, a picture, which I'm thinking is, is drawn by a child. Tell me it's about this picture and why you want it. drawn by my granddaughter. I'm not a very grandfatherly man. I don't do what some grandfatherly men do and, and rave and gush. and Not entirely unlike the male character in my novel. She's about yeah, 11 now, and she did that half a life ago when she was about six. And she did it when we were sitting in a, in a cafe and just did it in, a, in like a second. I couldn't believe it because I think it's... I don't like to think I look like that. It's a bit... Um, I think it's a really... But it's got, it's got something. The wildness of your hair. It's the facial hair. Droopy eyes. It's got the fact that my shoulders are all... 
twisted and contorted with the anguish of life. I think it, I thought it was just extra. I really, really thought it was extraordinary. Where do you keep it? On on what passes for a mantelpiece in my apartment. Right. Okay. So it's something that you would certainly yeah, it's out. see, I see every, it day. every day. Yeah. Um, okay. Softer than I am. It, well, you see, I'm softer than Beryl, my main character. Yeah, well, you my main be wonderful much harder. character, the best character I've ever written. I think. I do think, you? Yes, I do think that. In fact, my agent, when he got the manuscript, just Ray Beryl is fantastic. She's the best thing you've ever done. Can't you get rid of the bloke? <laughs> I said, well, I think she'd have no foil if I got rid of I got rid of the man. But I've been thinking about how Beryl occurred to me, and I don't know when you'd want to talk. Well, I mean, to I'm interested in, in absolutely in when she occurred to you. I'm also just fascinated by her command of language and how much fun you must have had. Never had so much fun as a writer before. I've never had a woman at the centre of one of my novels before. I never had the courage. I always thought, well, you need to know I don't, things I don't know about women. I write about men, unashamedly. She gave me a freedom, A, from being a man, B, from being the age I am, because she's older, so 90. And if you've got your wits about you when you're 90... The 90-year-olds I know, and I, ha- I know a lot, actually, who are vivid and fluent and acute, and it's a real freedom from... They're free from the things that we're worried about, free from the things that we've just been talking about, you know, giving offence. They don't care about giving offence. In fact, they relish giving offence. She <laughs> loves giving offence. She, she lives to give offence. She just forced herself. She just suddenly forced herself. I'd, I'd be a little bit mystical. She just appeared... I don't know what she was doing sitting on my desk because she's a little elderly to be sitting on my desk. It's mad, isn't it? I don't really have appearances, but they're not really apparitions. But that was what it was like. And she was just there. And I said to my wife, I just know what to do with this woman. I know exactly what I know who she is. I know what she's going to say. I know what she's for. I can't wait to start writing. And I wrote her in, in very, very fluently to begin with, you know, just pages of her when the novel opens. And she just was a gift. I don't know where from. Was she always going to be disdainful? of the modern world and disdainful of largely everyone around her. Was that where the comedy comes from? In particular, I thought what she's for is to kind of write a chronicle of what men were like in the 20th century. It's like a compendium of men because she goes through her husbands, not only her sons for whom she's got no time whatsoever, partly because she remembers the men who fathered the monarch and she's got no time for them. And it's like hers is a history of the, sh- the uselessness of 20th century man. Now, I don't know why I particularly wanted to write that. I'm not that enamoured of my sex. I do think we, you know, make a terrible mess of things. And I do think, looking, looking about the world now, that the people I admire most more and more turn out to be turn out to be women and that's a surprise to me that I've come to feel that because I've always seen myself as a kind of battling bloke I suddenly don't stand up for men anymore and Beryl gave me the opportunity just to make fun of men just quickly before we move on to the next object are you a better man in the 21st century than you were in the 20th yeah much 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 better man I became a better man when I turned 60 Why? I just became well, appetites changed. I really wasn't worth knowing as a young man. I was frenetic. Whatever I did about myself in whatever precautions I took about myself as a novelist, I didn't take about myself as a man in the world. I was rude. I was cruel. I was a terrible husband. I was a bad father. I wasn't worth knowing. I may have been entertaining company sometimes, but I was horrible. And it all grew from not having any confidence. 
really not having any confidence. I'd been a shy, introverted boy, and in the act of bringing myself out from shyness and introversion, I became the opposite. Now I'm lovely to, I'm lovely to be with. I know I'm lovely to be with. I can just see. I see it in my wife's eyes. She's thinking, he's much nicer than I feared he was going to be. <laughs> so it is, I kind of do dispense advice on these things. And I do say to women, don't go anywhere near a man before he's 60. It's, it's a universal truth. No man is worth knowing before he's 60. I'm sorry. I think my wife would agree with you. <laughs> OK, I hope she never gets to listen to this. OK, you have the next object here and... This is you've brought in a a, a program. From it's a, a playbill. A playbill. Okay. It's a playbill of a play that was of an adapt by, by someone I recognise his name. Yeah. Adaptation of um, my novel, The Mighty Waltzer, which came out in two thousand, I think. The Mighty Waltzer gave a kind of pleasure I'd not given as a novelist before. It's about a young boy playing table tennis who dreams of being a world table tennis champion and thereby making a fortune, which you don't as a world table tennis champion, and attracting the attention of beautiful women, which you don't if you're a world table tennis champion. <laughs> you don't. But that was, his, that was his fantasy and the joke. People would stop me in the street and say, this is my story. And I'd say, what, do you play table tennis? No, no, but they do some other nutty thing that you know it's it's really about the the hobbies that you have that absorb your time the obsessiveness the geekery exactly yes that's good that's a good way of putting it people loved the book and there very nearly was a film made of it and then finally this guy came along Simon, and said i'm the royal exchange theater in manchester wants to do something can i you know will you will you sell me the rights so we sold him and it happened and it was lovely that it happened. There it was for several weeks on at the Manchester Royal Exchange, uh, lovely theatre. It was a terrific experience, not because it's, it's thrilling to see, you know, your name in lights and your novel turned into something else. But what was particularly nice was the whole world of people that I'd known when I played table tennis, obsessively as I played it. I was good. I was a good player for a kid, for 14-year-old. But, you know, I played for Lancashire and things and won cups. And um, there's a picture of me in there holding a cup. Oh, wow, yes. Is there a difference with the London Jewish community and the Mancunian Jewish community? Are there differences? I think we had a better sense of humour because we were Mancunians. Right. So we had not only Jewish self-deprecation, which is, you know, a masterful art, yes. but northern self-deprecation, which is also a master. So we had those two arts together. There are all sorts of other, you know, important differences, like they, they, they don't know how to pronounce Yiddish, you know. They, they say matzah. It's matzah. And it's all to do with the different parts of the world that we've come. A lot of the Jews in Manchester came from Lithuania and we had our own pronunciations of Yiddish. Where does the desire come from to make people laugh? As a shy, introverted child, presumably you weren't the one that was wheeled out at bar mitzvahs and various other cultural events. Oh, come on, entertain us. No, I wasn't. I discovered I was a good speech maker, which everybody couldn't understand. How come that this little boy, stum, no, stum, and suddenly there he is making a speech. I could make a speech. The shy boy meets his mother's friends, all glamorous women they seem to him when he's seven, um, and he stutters out something and he's blushing and stammering, and then the only resource he's got is, is words. So he shapes a sentence that's got a kind of... Some form of comedy or cleverness. Right. There's in a punchline, and and they laugh. Right, 
and they laugh. And you realise, age seven, that you do have a power over women, that you're not just this tongue-tied, blushing person, but that you're someone who can have an effect on them. And when you make them laugh, ah, there is nothing in the world like that. Let's move on to a watercolour you've brought in. Three guys playing pool. That's a beautiful watercolour. Let me just bring that up and so you can... You can describe here. Well, this is this is sad. It's a watercolour of three guys playing pool in an ocean pub in Australia. It's in a pub by by the ocean. I'm not sure which ocean. It's in Australia. Um, two of the men are in shorts, short sleeved shirts. It's hot. You can feel the heat. It's just a light sketch done by somebody on the spot, as I remember. But the important thing for me is it was done by a very, very good friend of mine called Jeff Misson, who was a geographer at Melbourne University, uh, who I knew well, and who has just died. A lot of my Australian friends have died. In fact, three very good Australian friends died in this last 12 months. I'm very sentimental about Australia. Australia was... One should never talk about something being the making of you in case, you know, the truth is that you were never made. After having some confidence at school because I could make people laugh and thinking, this is okay, I'm all right, I've got out of my shyness now, I'm a boy in the world. Then I went to Cambridge and had a terrible time. I reverted. I was back being a tongue-tied kid again. And when I did make a joke in Cambridge, nobody laughed. And I needed a girlfriend and I couldn't find a girlfriend because there were no girls in Cambridge. I've said that to many people before. There were no, there were no girls there. And many of them said, well, I found a wife and I found, but I couldn't find. And in the end, I fell for a Manchester girl and brought her down to Cambridge. And my only female company in my final year there was my girlfriend from Manchester, who I then married. But Cambridge had been a disaster for me. I went out to to lecture at Sydney University immediately on leaving Cambridge. Don't know how I got such a good job. And life changed. The sun shone. People did laugh at my jokes. They didn't make me feel it was problematic being a working-class Jew, which must have been a problem in Cambridge, for me, in my own head. I don't know whether anybody else gave a damn, but I thought they gave a damn, and that's the same thing. They clearly didn't in Australia. It was a free, democratic place. I loved it. I loved the teaching. I loved everything about it. I just fell in love with Australia and have been in love with Australia ever since and have come and gone, and and some of the closest friends I've had, certainly male friends, have been Australian. So when one dies, as as this lovely man, Jeff, who was a geographer but you know, loved the, loved Matisse, he loved art and worked himself, that's the lightest sketch. When he died, I just felt, when he died, it's only a few months ago now, I just felt, well, some important part of me has gone. I loved Australian men because I loved the rough and tumble of the friendship with them. It took me a little while to work out what it was because in my first months in Australia, I was always fighting with, actually physically fighting with them, physically. You'd throw wine, throwing wine at one another and beer at one another. Then you'd start wrestling. I mean, not actually punching one another's mm. lights out, but wrestling around. You'd play, playfully fighting, but also fighting. And they'd call you a bastard. You're a bastard, you bastard. And then I thought, hang on. This is this is this is love talk. You bastard Jacobson means I love you. That's how men expressed love in Australia. They call one another a bastard. You get very, very drunk, you wrestle with one another on the floor, you get up, you get drunk some more, you cry a bit, 
I've done some crying in my life, but I've most of the crying that I've done in my life has been into the neck of Australian men. Uh, <laughs> It's the very, very strange. You bastard, Jacobson. And I say, you bastard. My lovely friend, Jeff. Oh, he always called me. Oh, you bastard. You mad bastard. And he was an admirer of my early novels. He would write to me from Australia telling me how much he liked them and he got them. And he was. This is genuinely a sad story. There's no one left to call me a bastard. They've gone. Sad. These are not tragic stories of men dying betimes, but they're still, you know, I'm getting much older, and so a lot of my friends, uh, some of whom were that little bit older than me, are dying, and it's sad. Mate? I've only just met you, so uh, however much it may console you, and I do quite a good Australian accent, I'm not going to call you a bastard on this podcast. I feel it would be a little bit too premature. (laughs) Kylie Minogue called me a bastard. Why? In a wonderful circumstances. I wrote an article in which I made the joke that when I went to Australia on a ship, because you, you went everywhere by boat, in 1965, they were all coming over on in the other direction from Australia. They were coming to Europe. I was going to Australia. And we hallooed one another on the high seas. And they called out, you're going the wrong way, mate. And that tickled tickled some programme makers and they said that would make a terrific programme. Let's make a programme about your knowing them and about them all. But as a consequence of this, I was made Honorary Australian of the Year. And I went to, there was a big big dinner at Australia House and I was honoured and given a medal which says Honorary Australian. Why didn't I bring that? I know. Fool, why didn't I bring the medal? What a fool. (laughs) Can I come back? Can Can I come back with the medal? You you tell us about it now. So they pretend it's here. It's here. They hung the medal around. God, they hung the medal around my neck, and they said, "Well, would you say a few words?" So I talked about. I told them what I've just told you about my love of Australia was based on the fact that you know you learn that when they call you bastard, they love you. They just love you, bastard. So they all enjoyed that. And I went back to sit at my table and sitting opposite me was Kylie Minogue, who was actual Australian of the year. I was just honorary Australian. And she smiled across the table at me and she parted. There were sort of plants and foliage and burning candles and things between us. She parted the foliage and moved the candle to one side and looked me deep in the eyes and said, You bastard, Howard. This has not fallen to every man. I know. This is this is a beautiful. It's making me well up just thinking about the, the 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 love that was in that word. And where's that medal now? Where do you keep it? It's in a it's in a box in my yeah. on my shelf. I don't know why I forgot to bring it. Oh, losing f- friends close to you and you go through life and you it's people's eighteenth birthday. It's actually in the Jewish community. It's like thirteen years old. There's a big event that goes on. Then there's an eighteenth. There's a twenty-first. Then there you buy your first house and then you have your first child and. Then as you get older, there's something different that happens and you meet your social... My mother is 80 now and her social gathering sometimes is she'll meet at funerals. I mean, that's where she'll get to see yes, people, yes. you know. Um, and there's a funeral in Live a Little. It's yes, actually at a funeral right. that my two 90-year-olds meet. I mean, I thought I liked that idea yeah. that they'll meet in a place of death and yet out of their meeting in that place of death comes life for them because they do, they fall in love can you quite say that? Yes, it's almost love. Yes. Before they can get to say it, they never do quite say it. Yeah. But it's love. Yeah. Anyway. But you counteract that by being very clear about however old you are, there is still a future. That just because there is more of your life behind you than there is in front of you, 
that doesn't mean that you can't still think about the future. Absolutely the case. And the future and the past are not, are not separate in that way. Beryl's and Shimmy's future really is about their meeting over the past. And it's, all, it's almost as though the recreating of the past, the reimagining of the past. Talking is so important. They talk and they talk and they talk. And I wanted that. I knew that was what I wanted for this novel. The second half of this novel, they would talk to each other, just talk to each other. And if they're talking about the past, nonetheless, the vividness in which each to each, they hear each other's past, reinterpret each other's past, changes the way each feels about the past. The past is not something you put behind you. The past is something that you interpret integrate into the now and therefore into the future. Your future is your past. Put that on a T-shirt. Well, before we go, I wanted to play a clip of Live a Little. Uh, We haven't mentioned yet the widows of North London who seem to pursue Shimmy to occupy their time. Now, in this bit, he's called over by Widow Schoolman to explain further the fortune he told her in the cards. Let's give that a listen now. When he leaves the restaurant... He finds Ruthie Schoolman's black BMW parked outside. She is sitting in the back seat, and when she sees him, she orders her driver to lower her window. This is not the first time a widow has beckoned to him from the back seat of a BMW. Among the widows of North London, Shimmy Carmelli is whispered about as the last of the eligible bachelors, by which they mean the last man able to do up his own buttons, walk without the aid of a frame, and speak without spitting. He knows this is not really about him. He's been in the retail business and understands the law of supply and demand and the importance of location. The demand is greater up here, more emotionally charged, too, on account of the air of catastrophic masculinity with which, when he is out and about, he carries himself, his high shoulders, his drooping eyes his slightly crazed insurrectionary stare, and the Cossack hats he favours. He reminds many of the widows of the fathers and grandfathers they left behind in their old countries, or know only from faded photographs. So he is under no illusion. They wouldn't be opening the windows of their BMWs to talk to him on the streets of Canterbury or Wells. That was Live a Little, read by David Sibley and written by Howard Jacobson. Why cards? Why why did Shimmy have this power? He does cartomancy, which yes. is which is a bit like the tarot, but not quite the tarot. Yeah. I've no idea where that came from. Once I had Shimmy, and he moved around a bit because he was closer to my age to begin with, and closer to me. Until I thought, I don't want him there. I don't want him too near me. So I made him older and thought about how he might look, and gave him a kind of height and an elegance. That, and a Russianness that that I don't have. Well, maybe I have a bit of Russianness. But um, I saw him dealing cards in a in a Chinese restaurant, and the reason I saw him doing that was because it's something my dad did. My dad was a magician. He was a children's magician and not a very good magician. And he loved magic. He was a member of the magic circle. He just liked doing it, and I just saw Shimmy doing that. And then I couldn't get rid of that idea. Then I started to get a little bit interested in why he might choose cartomancy, which is, it's it's not quite foretelling the future, but it's a kind, it's halfway to foretelling the future. And that was he got interested in that as a young boy because he didn't want to be who he was. It was it was an escape from himself. What is it that fascinates you about family dynamics? 
I can never do a, a character in a novel without doing their parents. I don't know who they are. You know, if you're writing a thriller or something, there's a detective, he's a detective. He does. I can't do it. I have to know, this is who he is because of this. This is who he is because of what was done to him, what was said to him, how he was made. I can't explain why I am like that. And, and sometimes the parental life, the family life, gets more interesting to me than anything. I think my very, very best book, which is Kaluki Nights, is steeped in family life, everything. Not a person moves without you seeing, you know, why they move like that, what their mother said, what their father said, the uncles and all that. Maybe I can't understand anybody else without knowing their family life because I can't understand me without my family life. Well, I'm fascinated by myself, as all writers are, but I'm fascinated by the degree to which I'm my father's boy or my mother's boy. My father thought I was a mother's boy, um, and I wanted to be a father's boy. It was my mother who had the stronger influence on me when I was growing. She read me the poems. She made me bookish. My dad didn't, but she was the introverted one, and from her I got the introversion. And from my dad, the magician, the market man who, you know, who I would see for most of my teenage years standing on the back of a lorry, clapping his hands and going, lady over here, lady over there. But he was, he was the entertainer, and I wanted to be that. And in a, in a way... You could say that some of my novels, particularly some of my noisier novels, are, you know, the meeting ground. It's where I've come to bring my mother and my father together. I have to say this is quite easily one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had. Well, that's very sweet of you to say so, but what were the others? Oh, Elif Shafak was pretty good, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, and Silesh Katyati. She's an impressive woman. Yeah, yeah. Silesh Katyati, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, was pretty impressive as well. So you're there. I mean, good. You're, good. You're, you're there. Howard Jacobson you're is one, a... You're one clever bastard. 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 You bastard. It's got to have a slight fall, too. Because what you've got to imagine is that the person saying it, is, as he's saying it, he starts standing up, but he finishes it. He's on, <laughs> he's on his knee. <laughs> You'll get there. I, I think you need someone to send you to Sydney for a couple of months. I really do. Uh, just a reminder that if you haven't already, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast uh, using sites such as Acast, iTunes or Spotify or using the podcast app on your smartphone or your Alexa-enabled device as well. Now, tickets are now available for a very special live Penguin podcast with Mallory Blackman at the Lowry in Manchester on the 31st of August. I don't think I can drag Howard to Manchester on the 31st of August. I don't know what he'll be doing. Um, oh, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been hanging out with you today, Howard. I have greatly enjoyed it too. You've prized all sorts of things out of me. You know what a taciturn person I am. I'd rather not say anything. And you've pulled out three quarters of my secrets. Yes. I can't wait till you write a next book, then I can get the final 25% of your secrets. Oh, thank you, Howard. Thank you. It's been great fun. Terrific fun. Don't Touch My Hair by Emma Dabbery. In this groundbreaking book on black hair, Emma Dabbery takes us from pre colonial Africa to today's natural hair movement. Moving between memoir and history lessons, Don't Touch My Hair is a unique book with a lot to say. We lived in the black mecca of the South for four years. 
I was too young to remember a sense of the colorism that is so deeply entrenched there. But my mother tells me people would frequently express sentiments such as, what a beautiful, read light-skinned, child. Let me see her hair. When they peeked under my bonnet and were confronted with my kinky naps, disappointment and awkwardness would quickly replace their enthusiasm. The audiobook edition of Don't Touch My Hair is available for digital download now.